Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. How's everything in your garden, Lucy? Blooming or very wet like in mine? A bit of both. It's either baking or being battered by huge downfalls. Haven't so, we said you know... this every week? <laughs> yes. Since probably. early June. Yes, yes, probably. The daylilies are out. That's nice. And I have had my first strawberries. Oh, very good. I can't have them. I'm not allowed because the snails, which we're not allowed to complain about anymore. We know mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. They get them. Put it that way. I don't get them. I could get raspberries because the raspberries are higher up. Well, I have had three strawberries so far from my strawberry plot. That's a yield, I would say. I'd say that's a yield. And also, you know that way, you know, that you're always complaining about a supermarket strawberry aren't, isn't mm. one. And so I ate it and I said to the person I was eating it, what do you think? And he said, absolutely extraordinary, delicious, not at all watery like a supermarket strawberry. We're not going to get sponsored by a supermarket now, are we? Never mind. <laughs> and I think he just felt he had to say that. And even if they had been horrible, right. he would have yes. said it. So anyway, never mind. They're nice wild strawberries and there's always the chance of a bit of extra protein because you might eat accidentally eat a little bug along with it. Well, I did wash a few bugs off, it's true. It's the complete meal sometimes. What are you up to this week, Alex? This week I am going to Bantry in West Cork to the West Cork Literary Festival. It is, I have to say, just a beautiful place where I used to go 100 years ago when I was young. You did all the sort of rock pooling around Bantry Bay, all that sort of thing? Yes. Eating fish and chips? Yes, definitely. Definitely that. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful place. I'm glad to hear it still is, as it were. Why wouldn't it be? (laughs) It's a lovely place and it's a lovely festival. And I'm going to interview India Knight about her novel, Darling, which is a sort of bringing up to date of the characters from Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate and assorted other works, which I'm enjoying very much. Mm, If that whole event is not a treat, I don't know what it is. Well, I just, the thing is, I don't really need a huge amount of persuasion to talk about Nancy McFadden at any <laughs> no, point. So I'm no, going to be doing that. No, me neither. Yeah. I don't need to be persuaded to do my work, Lucy, unlike Geoffrey <laughs> Chaucer. I know where you're going. What a segue that was. <laughs> it was a very good one. Yes, and a wonderful example of, so they think they found Geoffrey Chaucer's handwriting and brilliantly, as you've pithily noted it down, asking Richard II for time off, basically, and saying, can someone else do next week? Because uh, I'd like to be excused. In French, I couldn't read it. Could you read the, uh, I couldn't read the script, really, from what I saw. No, the, I, read, I read the transcription. I don't know. I, my eyes aren't good enough. But lots of prior disbelief, I think, the scepticism that this was yes. indeed his handwriting. I thought he probably got you know, his secretary or, or, you know. Got a clerker to do it. Exactly, got a clerker, probably one of my ancestors to do it. (laughs) But then for whatever reason, they decided that no, it very much is his handwriting and the only example thereof. Mm, Yeah, and it is just lovely for it to be such a normal thing. I'm just saying, can I be off next Tuesday? Can I be excused? You know, whatever it is, because I've got something on. I wonder if there's something he had on. I haven't done the timeline, but was he, you know, was it to do a bit of writing? Was it to get on with his magnum opus? Or do you think it was just, you know, there was a skiving down at skiving? Summer holiday. Yeah. Yeah, probably. He was going to the beach. Apparently much, much more scholarship about to come and no doubt we'll report back on that. However, 
we have rather different fish to fry mm. this week on this week's show as the peloton grinds its way through the massive central ned bolting tells us about his obsession with a tour de france of a hundred years ago and peter parker on a new autobiography of noel coward but first it's july which for a lot of people means the tour de france and this year's is particularly thrilling and there's a new book out, reviewed in the TLS this week, which looks not at this year's race, but that of a century ago, all prompted by an auction bid on an unknown lot. The book is 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 and a Tour de France Obsession, and it's by Ned Bolting, the tête de la course of cycling journalists, whose voice you will immediately recognise and who I am delighted to say is here with us today. Ned, many, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. That's lovely to be asked. And it's the rest day of the Tour de France. So um, you've caught me at uh, it's perfect timing. Well, Ned, it's great news for us. But <laughs> don't you just hate a rest day? Um, I mean, as an armchair cycling fan, I'm just thinking, come on, guys. Get up the side of a mountain again. It was so exciting yesterday and heartbreaking when they were going up the very, very, very steep hill. At the end, yeah, and I can't remember his name. Got caught, Mike Woods. Oh no, no, Mike Woods got the other guy. He did the catching. I don't think we should be talking about this. I think Ned should be talking. This about is this. the thing, Lucy. This is why we are not <laughs> the paid professionals. <laughs> I tell you, got caught. It was an American from Boise, Idaho, called Matthew Jorgensen mm. who got caught. It was heartbreaking for him actually, but it was a spectacular setting, wasn't it? It was the the Puy de Dome, which is a a volcano in the middle of the Massif Central with a big radio mast on the top. And it's just one of those, it's as if a child had drawn it, you know? It's it's just a kind of like classically, almost cartoonish shaped volcano that apparently formed, it was a kind of one hit wonder of explosions. So it just formed in 300 years, which is obviously incredibly quick for a volcano. Mm. And then it's been dormant since. And the, the Tour de France hasn't raced up there for 35 years because it's a nature reserve. So there were no fans at the top. Oh, is that why there were no fans? Because it's a nature reserve very kind of special ecological mm. environments and uh, they didn't want it being trampled quite rightly so it had a rather eerie kind of strange quality to it the race yesterday but oh, oh no i'm glad you're watching anyway it's nice to think that people back home are watching of course glued we're glued it's as much as we can do to talk about books i i did note <laughs> yesterday that there were all the spectators being held back from you know getting in the rider's way quite near they were already the rider seemed to be going on quite a steep hill, and then you looked up to the mast. However, the VIPs went on a special tram, which hardly seemed fair. Very unfair, very <laughs> unfair. But normally, you know, when President Macron drops in, as he does every year on the Tour de France, the president, whoever he is, always drops in on the Tour de France. They normally take a helicopter. It was obviously yesterday a second string of VIP, not the kind of, not the real top crew. Ned, would you actually like to talk about your book, which is why we asked you on? Sorry, Lucy, I got overwhelmed <laughs> by enthusiasm there. Carry on, I on know, you go. I know. I was just going to say that I mentioned that Ned's book was sort of set off by this auction lot that set off this wonderful exploration of the year 1923 and the Tour de France, and then you explore much more as well. So how did you come across? Can you tell us how you found out about the lot and what the film showed you? It was as close as anything has come in my life to being an act of providence, really. It was a WhatsApp message from a colleague of mine with whom I work on the other sport that I cover, which is the sport of darts, which is probably as far as you can get you know, removed from cycling on, on mm. this kind of scale of human endeavour. Really quite different, isn't it? It's like very the shortest space different. possible <laughs> in the quickest the John... time. Less athletic, shall we say. Less exactly. Athletic. 
Exactly. Well, it's the difference between a 220 kilometer stage and the length of an Oki, you know, <laughs> amongst other differences. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So John sent me a link to a, an online auction and this little lot that he'd spotted. He wasn't interested in it because he collects football memorabilia and stuff like that. But he thought I might be. And uh, so I bid 100 quid or something. And um, no one else was that interested. And I won a battered old projected reel of Pathé news film of an unknown date but it was clearly the Tour de France, 35 millimetre film. So each, if you think about it, each frame is really quite big. It's almost like the size of a, of a top trump card. You know, the actual image is quite big. And then I started exploring it. And, um, but the, from the very moment I, it arrived in a jiffy bag into my house, it took over my life. Mm. The moment I kind of very carefully unreeled it from its projected canister and kind of held it up against the light, I could see that it was going to be magical as soon as I could make it move, you know. And how did you actually play it? Well, it took months, actually. And the expertise of a wonderful restoration production house in the East End of London, who finally managed lovingly to restore it. Because you couldn't just, you know, attach it to uh, sprockets and let it run and digitise it as you would do with a conventional film. It was too delicate. Mm. It was too delicate. It would have fallen apart and ripped to pieces and then no one would ever have seen it move. But eventually an email landed after months. It just popped into my inbox and it said, here's your film. And I clicked on a QuickTime file and I was overwhelmed by the sense of no one's seen this for a hundred years. No one has seen these riders move for a hundred years. And here they are entirely silently just playing on my laptop screen of my Apple Mac. It kind of straight away, it had this, it was like being hit with an emotional freight train and it set me off on this journey that is ongoing, you know, endures way beyond the sort of publication of my book. And I, I don't imagine I'm ever going to really give up on because it quite simply took over my life. Mm. Well, you can see, I mean, very helpfully in the book, early on you put a QR code, which is wonderful, actually, because then you can see the film and then kind of follow you along as you unfurl the story. So there is this wonderful unfurling as you kind of follow it wherever it goes, beginning with the race itself. So tell us what the Tour de France was like 100 years ago. It was 20 years old, the Tour de France. So it had been first raced in 1903, just after the turn of the century. So it was an established race. This month, they're racing over 21 stages, and most of the stages are around about 180 kilometers in length or thereabouts. Back then, it was 15 stages long. Every other day was a rest day. And the reason for that was the distances were insane. So the route followed the exact, as exact as they could, the perimeter of the nation of France, mm. you know, hugging the coastline. In the immediate aftermath of the First World War, of course, it could go even further east. So it retook Strasbourg. Mm. so to speak, you know, those territories that have been held by the Germans after the um, Franco-Prussian War. And every stage was in excess of 400 kilometres. And the stage in question that I eventually discovered from this footage was stage four of 1923. It was 412 kilometres in length. It's mind-boggling, isn't it, that they were doing that every other day? I mean, it's they were truly exceptional human beings. I mean, they genuinely were. That, of course, you know, in the long history of the Tour de France, not everything was above board in terms of, no. you know, how they managed the physiological process. I mean, it is a breathtaking endeavour. You know, they would have to start in the middle of the night, shortly after midnight, and they wouldn't finish until close to sundown the next day. Mm. And for that reason, and it took me a while for that. I'm so stupid. It took me a while for the penny to drop. I couldn't figure out why my film didn't start at the start of the stage, which was in Brest, in Brittany. And it was only after several weeks of thinking about it that I suddenly thought, 
No, of course, they couldn't have filmed in the pitch dark in Brest, not with a, a movie camera from 1923. It mm. would have required sunlight. So the very first scene from the film is in Lorient, further down the Breton coast, 180 kilometres into this monstrously long stage. Because by that time the sun's come up so you can film them. Exactly right. Yeah. So there's a lot of wonderful characters that you bring to life, some of whom will be familiar to fans of the Tour de France and some of them won't. There's Théophile Bigman, Henri Desgranges, the Pellissier brothers, Gargent, which was his nickname that you tell us about. Did anyone sort of leap out at you or did they all leap out at you? I was very struck by the story. I knew a little of the Pellissier brothers for sure. Mm. Théophile Bigman, the writer you first mentioned there, I clearly didn't know the first thing about. And I'm not alone in that because his entire history has been completely forgotten. Mm. But I think of the better known riders, the rider who I eventually figured out in the film is wearing the maillot jaune, is leading the race, wearing the yellow jersey, is an Italian called Ottavio Botecchia, who served valiantly on the Italo-Austrian front line in the war in the Dolomites, received two medals, escaped from Austrian prisoner war camps on numerous occasions, was a socialist, made a bit of an enemy of Benito Mussolini when he came to power the previous year in 1922 and died in mysterious circumstances when he was at the height of his powers, having won the Tour de France twice, the first Italian, in 1927. So he's four years away in this film from meeting this extraordinarily mysterious death mm. that he obviously knows nothing about. So many of the riders must have been veterans of the First World War as well. And was that something that was a common experience in the cycling community? I mean, all of them, mm. you know, without exception, all of them would have, if they hadn't served themselves on the front line, but I would imagine pretty much all of them had, all of them would have been scarred by bereavement, not just from the war itself, but by Spanish flu, which of course ripped through the populations of Europe in 1919. So there was a commonality of suffering in that peloton that is probably, no, certainly unique in the history of the Tour de France. I was quite struck, actually. So I'm, not, I'm glad you picked up on that. Sense that this was a unique peloton that will never hopefully be repeated because in my stories, I kind of widened my search out to tag in all these political and cultural phenomena that were circling around the race at the time. I spend a lot of time thinking and reading about Ernest Hemingway, who was in Paris in 1923 and was just about to publish his first book of poetry. So at the time, he was working for a newspaper in Toronto and scratching a living, really. But he, of course, or rather, oh, help me out here, his mentor, Gertrude Stein, thank you. Yep. She coined the <laughs> phrase on his behalf, you are the lost generation, you know, referring to Hemingway, who, of course, himself, as we know from A Farewell to Arms, had served in the, the high mountains of the Dolomites as a medic. But the lost generation applies fantastically well, I think, to the peloton of the 1923 Tour de France, which is riddled through with this kind of sense of, well, for want of a better word, tragedy in certain cases. There must have been a kind of fatalism, I wonder, that would mean, you know, that kind of feat of endurance, cycling all those hundreds of kilometres, would seem somehow something that you should be doing, somehow kind of strike back on, on behalf of sort of life, I guess. I think you've made a really good point there. And I think that's one of the unchanging virtues, is that the right word, features of the peloton. And I would, I would say that's not changed in 100 years. I know a lot of the riders in the modern era very well. Some of them have become, you know, some of my closest friends after they've retired. But the commonality, the one thing that they tend to share is this sense of a childhood or early adulthood in which they were 
often battling with certain sort of mental health characteristics, or at least the bicycle often represented in the most simple way in these lives, in these biographies, a way of putting distance, physical distance, as well as emotional distance between you and the background or the history you were leaving behind. You know, and I don't think that's changed. So a lot of the modern riders, when you scratch down and think about it, why did you as a young man or woman, why did you choose this particular sport whose very core, whose very essence is suffering? There is little joy in cycling. You're not playing basketball with the Harlem Globetrotters. You're not racing around a motor track like Lewis Hamilton. You're not slamming the winning volley into the Wimbledon grass court, ball juggling with Lionel Messi in front of 70,000 wild fans. You are on your own on a mountain. We saw this yesterday. And mm. all you're doing is suffering. Yep. So it takes a particular kind of psychological makeup. And I suppose also, as you say, for that generation of the tour riders of 1923, they'd already been through so much. In a way, they'd be like, well, it's not going to be worse. So, you know, let's try this. I mean, maybe that was part of why they were so amazingly sort of tough and resilient. I mean, who knows? Every motivation would have been different, I think. But I think there is, yeah, I think you can sort of get that sense. Of the, there's a word that often French commentators use when they're talking about cycling, and it's mortification, you know. <laughs> That's a Gosh. word that crops up in <laughs> yeah. French cycling parlance. Yeah. You know? So there's a dark side to all of this. But yes. on the other hand, it's complex, isn't it, that all these factors are in play. On the other hand, a lot of the stars of the 1923 Tour de France were making a lot of money. You know, they were, they were stars. And um, they were building a future for the rest of their lives. Mm. However, fortunately or unfortunately, the rest of their lives played out. And Ned, were they fated in the same way on the streets as they are now? Did they have people chanting and cheering and waving flags and dogs running in their paths and all of that kind of thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the film is evidence of that. Mm, you can see them. Yeah. You can actually see it. You know, there's a little town that they pass through in Brittany, beautiful little town called La Roche-Bernard. I mean, it's packed just like it would be today, just like it would be. They're standing five, ten deep on the pavement. But they've got more clothes on. I can't remember whether you said that in the book or whether I just noticed it. They've got lots and lots of clothes on. <laughs> well, that was my insane sort of like, I was trying to figure out which year it was because for multiple years, the Tour de France route was exactly the same. So it could have been any one of five years. And I was trying to look at weather forecasts weather reports from like all the French regional newspapers to see if it justified the wearing of hats and coats. Yeah. <laughs> it really was sleuthing that you did. There's a wonderful detail about the cyclists on a rest day going down to the beach in suits and ties. Oh, yeah. In their Racing Sunday best. donkeys in their Sunday And having best. donkey races. Yeah, that's lovely. That was lovely when I found that. I just don't feel that's what these lads will be doing on their rest days some. I imagine it's all sort of ice baths and carb loading and that sort of thing. Funnily enough, I'm staying in exactly the same hotel today as Groupama FDJ and Thibaut Pinot, the great French climber. And um, this morning, he just uh, hung out on the breakfast terrace with his teammates, sort of like m rather morbidly just stirring his muesli around and looking a bit glum. Oh. And they went off for a little bit of a ride didn't really stop to speak to any of the fans he'd waited outside of the hotel. And they come back and he's done a press conference on Zoom, which I've, you know, he's probably in the next door while I'm doing this. He's probably yeah. next door in the, in the room next door. So it's a very isolating experience. But back then, yeah, they, you know, they had the whole day off. And they, yeah, on this particular occasion, four of them, including this rider I become increasingly fascinated with, this Belgian rider about whom nothing is known, Théophile Beckmann. They went and they had two races. They hired some donkeys and had a donkey race. And then they hired some little kiddies bikes like tiny little bikes and they had they raced those as well in their suits <laughs> yeah it's, it's a lovely image you make the point that as well as you 
there's the Tour de France context, but there's also you talk about the historical background and the cultural background. And I think also this must be the most literary sporting book I've ever read, because you mentioned Hemingway. Botecchio, who you were talking about, was actually in The Sun Also Rises, wasn't he? You say that. He's he's a real bit of life that gets put in there. That blew my mind. Yeah. 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 yeah it's amazing. And Alexandre Dumas, which I was very pleased about. I love him. And Alfred Jarry, who, among other things, was a bike fanatic, wasn't he? Completely. As I'm sure you know, he was penniless. He was one of France's most famous tragic drunks, really. He was a mm. terminal alcoholic who died very, very young in penury. But the only thing he ever spent any money on, apart from booze, was a bicycle. <laughs> he bought it on higher purchase from a bike shop in Laval, I found out. And I can't remember what the total cost was of the bike, but it was hundreds of francs. It was about the best bike you could buy, a Clément Lux 96. And he bought it in exactly the same year, in fact, just weeks before the premiere of Uburois. And when he died, and I can't remember the year of his death off the top of my head, but when he, he died... He was very young though, wasn't he? Very young. He was in his early 30s. Yeah. He'd only paid off, I think, a total of five francs to the bike shop. So he'd fallen behind on his payments completely. And they just, the executors of his will had to return the bike <laughs> to the bike shop. <laughs> Talking of dissolution and drink and drugs and things, on a nice note, it's a lovely moment, again, not like the cyclists of today, where they may stop and have a glass of wine for their lunch and a soup in a brasserie or something like that. But I was amazed by their drugs of choice. I mean, you said right at the beginning that it wasn't all above board, but chloroform and cocaine, I mean, presumably not at the same time. Well, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, the science of doping was quite rudimentary back then, but it does seem a little contradictory. I would grant you, it feels like you might be <laughs> pressing your foot simultaneously on the accelerator and the brake pedal. <laughs> but, you know, doping at the Tour de France, let's just deal with this now in one little sentence. Doping at the Tour de France, you know, right up until the late 1960s, wasn't illegal. It was just slightly frowned upon, you know. There was no regulation against it. And it, the kinds of drugs that they would take all the way from the birth of the Tour de France through to the 1960s, 1970s and the early 1980s were pretty much non-performance enhancing in the sense that they were simply there to mask the agony. Yeah? Wow. That was it. Wow. That was it. So obviously that makes right, you go better. Yeah. But they're actually just, you know, alcohol was clearly being used all the time. Chloroform, cocaine, they all have, a, they all have that in common that they take away some of the pain. And the real sort of game-changing doping happened later on in the late 1980s and the 1990s with the advent of EPO, which changes the way your body works. You know, that was a whole different sort of thing yeah. that ushered in the Armstrong era that we've lived through and we're kind of still dealing with the consequences of. But back then, the doping was all about, how do I get through the day? Mm. Mm. How do I get through these 412 kilometres? How I'm do I get through the, the night? night? I mean, they just yeah. must have been exhausted. It does seem, and obviously, it's an utterly, utterly punishing and exhausting race now. But it does seem to me that they are almost two different sports to different sets of demands being made on the body and the mind or am I wrong does it seem to you that there's a continuum well I mean this is going deep into the history of the tour but there is a parallel but so one of the conclusions that I start to draw in 1923 is that when I look outside of the race I become convinced that the year 1923 is absolutely a pivotal year for me that it's the birth it's the cradle of modernity it actually happens in 1923 you know and also it's the kind of final chapter of the First World War is being closed and the starting pistol for the Second World War is being fired. And in the same way, the Tour de France, this is a moment of junction 
where the tactics that we now understand from the Tour de France, like drafting and teamwork and, and you know, where team operates to produce one winner, they're being explored and developed. There's one character, and off the top of my head, I'd have to look back at the book. It's a while since I've finished it. I can't remember his name. But he wins a stage late on in the 1923 Tour de France. I talk about where he attacks like a maniac on this hot day right down in the south of France where everybody else oh, stops. Oh, the guy who doesn't stop for a drink. Yes, he goes straight past them. Yeah. The rest of the peloton dive into Salon de Provence where they know there is a mossy fountain and they all cool down in this fountain. He just carries on. Cellier, is that his name? No, it isn't. I've forgotten his name. Was it Brice or not? Uh, yes, it was Lucien Brice. Very good. There Very go. good. Thank you. <laughs> Later on, he becomes the first domestique, you know, in mm. Tour de France history where he's been hired solely to support a leader. And so there's a kind of like... It's all beginning to start the modern Tour de France in 1923, around about this time. Mm. The idea of a sort of efficiency apart from anything else, the efficiency yeah. of a team working together and the professionalisation, I suppose. Yeah, because prior to that, you know, in the uh, in the pre-First World War iteration of the Tour de France, it had been more like a, a kind of Bear grills exercise, you know. How do you survive? <laughs> <laughs> How do you not die? <laughs> How do you not die doing this? Exactly. In the book, you call it a cultural juggernaut. And I hadn't, I think, before reading it, I hadn't quite realised how kind of important it is to the sort of life and the psyche of the country. And this is this amazing bit when Descanges, the early the early founder of it and director of it, you say, and he compared one of the winners, Pellissier's contributions to cycling. He said, it's like Debussy for music or Manet for painting or Zola for literature, just because this stuff is just sort of normal. It's all the same kind of thing. It's incredibly important to the sort of, the cultural life of the country as well, isn't it? And it speaks of France at that particular moment in history as well, I think. You know, Desgrange was the editor of a newspaper called Lotto that set up the Tour de France in order to increase its circulation and its profile. But he also set up and edited a newspaper called Comedia, which was an arts newspaper. There was none of this sort of divide that perhaps we all knew at school growing up in the UK, if that's where we did. You know, you were either into your sport or you were into the arts mm. and never the twain should meet, you know, really. There was a wonderful kind of fusion about an understanding that it's all human endeavour mm. one mm. way or another. So mm. that would have been completely normal, that kind of prose that mixes the works of Zola and Debussy with the ride of Henri Pellissier in the Alps. Who actually turned out to be a rotter. Scoundrel. <laughs> yes. Bad. I won't give that away. I, that's an amazing story. So, it is. Yeah. No, yeah. Okay. I was really interested as well that you do, you bring your own life into it as well. You explore kind of outwards, as I say, the history and, and the context of it, but you also bring your own life, the circumstances of lockdown and the pandemic and that horrible echo, as you mentioned, of the of the sort of leftover effects of the Spanish flu of 1918-1919. There's still a bit of that around, isn't there, in 1923, and you're writing the book in lockdown. I mean, the echoes just sort of stacked up. The, the longer I worked on the project, the more I saw the echoes of exactly 100 years ago. But there are a couple of reasons why I narrate in the first person and why I do bring my own story into it. One is I don't know any other way of writing. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not a historian, you know. So to kind of step out of it and present on the page something that looks like objective fact would be fraudulent on my behalf. So it's my caveat to write saying, well, this is what I concluded. But, you know, presenting myself as the flawed human being that I am felt very important, especially when I'm dealing with grand themes that I do deal with in this book or I do address because I'm fascinated with them. But equally, it felt important to set myself in the context of 2020 because a bit like riding a bike, we can all, I think, remember the first moment we rode a bike independently. You know, it's one of the few memories that we can all share, actually. 
you know, we can't remember the first day at school necessarily, all of us, but most of us can remember the first time we actually rode a bike. Because mm, it's terrifying when they let go for the first time. Exactly. And it's one of those quite <laughs> powerful sort of like unexpected and formative moments in our lives. And in a totally dissimilar fashion, but with the same effect, we all can understand the isolation that we went through, you know, because we all we all did it apart from number 10 Downing Street who didn't. But we all get that, don't we? And so it felt... And also, I couldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done this book had I not been shut down, had the world not closed around me. I found lockdown very hard emotionally. I found it bitter. I wasn't one of those people who said, do you know what? In a funny way, I quite enjoyed it. I didn't. Mm. And 1923 was my escape route. So I just fell through a century and stayed there, <laughs> you know. As you say, it's going to be your life's work now, or one part of your life's work. And I noticed that you... There's a screening of the film that you're going to be at this week, isn't there, in France? Two days after the Tour de France finishes. So on the very next day after the Tour de France, I'm going to La Roche-Bernard, this little town in Brittany. I've been invited by the mayor in the town hall and they're going to show the little clip. And I think it's the only, well, certainly from that era, it's the only surviving film of their little town. And they're going to do a little Q&A with me. You know, probably That's six wonderful. people will attend, if that. Three of whom are my family. But nothing <laughs> makes me more proud and gives me more pleasure than that. Because from a long distance, from London to La Roche-Bernard, I fell in love with this place. I literally, and then in the moment in the book where I actually go there and see it and meet people in the real world was quite overwhelming. And to have, you know, have this tiny little honour that means the world to me of being asked back by the people who live there. Yeah, it's wonderful. Mm. Well, you rescued it, didn't you? Because as you were saying, you hadn't, no one had seen that piece of film for a hundred years and it just might have ended up, you know, in a bin somewhere or set on fire because it turns out it was extremely flammable. Yes, yeah. You know, it was this very delicate thing that you found and then kind of unfurled. Yeah, and again, this Belgian writer called Théophile Beekman, about whom nothing is known, I, I find myself sitting here in this hotel room in Paris. I know more about him than anybody on planet Earth. <laughs> and mm. that includes his living relatives, which seems like a very odd thing to have done <laughs> with my life. And yet <laughs> it feels like an enormous honour and a strange privilege and a responsibility, actually. So rescuing someone's biography from obscurity which is something many historians have done, but I'm not a historian. I now understand what that means, you know, and I've, I've made contact with his living relatives and to them, it means the world. So that I feel very attached to. And um, yeah, so yeah. It was actually my mum who <laughs> very, very early on in this process, when I just managed to get the film digitized, I sent a, co a copy of, by email to my mum who herself was in isolation. And I said, look at this, I've just discovered this film. And she, and I've worked out it's from 1923. And she emailed me back saying, good Lord, that's nearly a century old. And it was only then that the penny dropped that there was a centenary coming up and uh, and the mm. whole thing sort of like fitted in so neatly. Mm. Well, I'm very glad she reminded you of that. <laughs> good old mum. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and before we let you go, Ned, because as I say, we are talking to you in, frankly, probably the busiest part of your working year. And so we're extremely grateful that you can talk to us today. Before we let you go... We can't let you go without talking a little bit about the current tour, which is very, very mm. exciting. If we were standing next to you in a bookie and we nudged you and said, who should we put our money on? What would you reply? I really shy away from normally from predictions because you can't tell what's going to happen in the future because it hasn't happened yet. 
Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, Given that. But I feel it's kind of pointless to make predictions because more often than not, the interesting answer is the one that won't happen. Mm. And the boring answer is the one that will happen. However, I did go out on a limb after last year's Tour de France, which was won by Jonas Vingegaard, the Dane, who is mm. currently in the yellow jersey, trying to win his second Tour de France. And I had predicted that he would win that Tour de France, which is one of the few things I've ever got right. But the prediction I made after last year's Tour de France was that he would never win another Tour de France. Oh, gosh. Oh, okay. are you team Pogacar then? Well, I couldn't possibly reveal any uh, bias or allegiance. Well, not that kind of lot. I mean, you know, figuratively speaking, I mean, that's what you think might happen. I think that Jonas Vingegaard will never win another Tour de France. Gosh. Okay. Oh. That's a that's a huge prediction, actually. So <laughs> Well, almost entirely wrong, I would imagine, but there you go. That's my hunch. <laughs> well, that's all right. I tell you what, when we put our bets on, Lucy, you bet with Ned and I'll bet against Ned or something like that, and we'll one of so us we'll just, might win. Yeah, we'll s- split the proceeds. If you just hedge your bets between you like that, I mean the only people who win are the bookies, aren't they? But yes, there we right. go. Absolutely yes. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they always so win. Mark's going, they always, they always win. win. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was so fascinating and so brilliant. And we could talk about it, as you can tell, for another hour and a half. But we must let you go because you've got to actually work on the actual Tour de France. Thank you so much for talking to us about this year's and the 100 years ago. And thank you so much for coming on. It was a complete pleasure. Thanks for the invite. to come on the show peter parker on the indefatigable noel coward and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode flexibility is great that's why there's yoga Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. It's often said that a successful writing career requires as much graft as it does genius. If so, Noel Coward might be a poster boy for putting the hours in. Over the course of his life, he created more than 60 plays, musicals and reviews, and a seemingly incessant stream of songs, short stories, poems, a novel, and many volumes of autobiography and diaries all while performing in his own and other people's work. A new biography of Coward by Oliver Soden, drawing on a wealth of archive material, 
tells us more. Peter Parker has reviewed it in this week's TLS, and I'm delighted to say he joins us now. Peter, hello. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for writing this really fascinating review. You mentioned that Philip Hoare's biography of 1995 was very highly regarded, but that Soden, the new biographer, has had access to documents released since then. What are they and and what do they tell us? And I suppose that's a long way of asking, was it worth writing a new biography? Well, I think to answer your last question first, yes, it definitely was. There were two major archives that have been released or have become accessible since um, Philip Hoare wrote his book. One is the archive of his partner, Graham Payne, who'd been his boyfriend for many, many years, and I think was possibly still alive when Philip uh, Hoare wrote his book. But there are also, there are two major Noel Coward archives, and one is from the, as it were, the office is the more professional one, and then there's the personal one. But it's released lots and lots of stuff, including masses of juvenilia, the unexpurgated diaries. I mean, the diaries we have, good as they are, um, only represent a tiny amount of it and have been Uh, They came out some time ago, so they have been, they were edited very well, but obviously there were certain things that couldn't go in and various people who are still alive. (laughs) So they had to um, not put all that in. So there's this mass of new material, quite a lot about Coward's war service, and it's definitely worth having a second go. I mean, I think Noel Coward is probably one of those people. There have been lots of other books about him, and there will no doubt be further books uh, in the future. Um, And new stuff is always coming to light. I mean, there's a great deal about Coward in the latest volume, The Chips Channon Diaries, the last volume, which covers sort of 1943 to his death in 57. And Coward appears quite a lot in that. I think that only was published after Oliver Soden's book was in the press. So there's new material coming to light all the time. I mentioned at the beginning Coward's industry, and this is a line that Soden pursues, isn't it, that it was by hard work that he, and you you quote this line, forced himself into brilliance. And that started really early in his life, didn't it? Yes. I mean, he was just determined to be hardworking. And of course, because he had this immensely suave public persona that, you know, everything was absolutely went like a dream. And he would pretend that various plays, you know, or any play he wrote only took him a couple of weeks. And in some cases, that's true. For example, Blythe's Spirit, as Soden puts it, went from brain to page in under a fortnight and was on stage a month later. It wasn't always like that. And Soden has found various notebooks, working notebooks, that show Coward actually working on things over and over again until he got them right. So, I mean, as you said, not only was he doing, producing this vast amount of work, but he was also had a full-time career as an actor for much of his life, shoved on the stage at 11 by his mother. Don't put your son on the stage, Mrs. Coward. (laughs) And then, you know, within a couple of years was in Peter Pan playing slightly and getting four pounds a week, which was three times the average wage of people in Britain at that time. So he earned a vast amount of money, but it's not as though it came to him terribly easily in spite of what he said. He did really work very, very hard. And I think having a very ambitious mother probably helped. The poor old father 
and the younger brother barely feature at all in any of Coward's own accounts of his life. Really? So it, they were a sort of a unit, him and his mum, sort of storming the showbiz scene? Well, Soden does a sort of quite witty thing at the beginning where he talks about Mrs Coward giving birth and then he suddenly says, and then the child dies. And in fact, Coward did have an older brother who died in childhood. And therefore, because of this disaster, Mrs Coward was very protective of her next son, which was Noel. And they did enter this sort of really sort of cloying relationship. But, you know, before he was very old, he was really supporting the entire family because his father was a sort of rather feckless figure who demonstrated organs for a piano manufacturer or piano sales company and didn't really earn much. And Mrs. Coward, uh, horrors, had to take in lodgers. So really, Coward rode to the rescue on this sort of immense amount of extremely well-paid work, both as an actor and a writer, latterly. Wow, so they were kind of what sort of solidly sort of lower middle class, I suppose. Yes, yeah. Teddington, Middlesex. Yes, there was that, <laughs> there was that kind of financial impetus, clearly. And it sounds like there was also a degree of desire for a more glittering kind of life, a more sort of socially accomplished sort of life. Yes, I mean, he was he was stage struck. And, you know, if you go into the theatre age 11 and you're acting, you're maybe a child, but you're acting in plays with well-known actors and you get involved in that whole life that it's mainly in the evening apart from matinees. So you're already sort of being led into a life of sort of adults and famous adults. And there you are standing on stage and you're bowing gracefully as, you know, thousands cheer, uh, you know. Howard was, you know, he liked acclaim. I mean, I had forgotten that, in fact, the master, which is what he was often referred to, particularly later in his life, was something that he invented and insisted upon. It wasn't someone else who sort of dubbed him the master. Did he insist upon it then? So he would be like, no, that's the master, if you don't mind. Yes, exactly. Yes. Will you please call me the master? Yes, exactly. That's bold. But that's very interesting is that creation of the persona that you say that the persona is that he's just kind of lying around being languid and not doing anything. It's absolutely the opposite, isn't it? The persona is really a long way from the reality. I don't think it's in the book, but there is an early publicity shot of Coward in his sort of trademark dressing gown, sort of lounging in bed, sort of idly flicking through some papers with his cigarette lit in the cigarette holder. And, you know, I think the idea was to give this idea that he was actually a great deal grander than he really was, and that he didn't mm. just sort of, he was a genius to whom words flowed in and out. I mean, he, he certainly, I mean, he had a lot of bad reviews in his life, but he thought he knew better. And he thought the critics, if they didn't like his play, he thought they were idiots and would just say, <laughs> right, well, I'll just go and write another couple of plays and that'll show them. Which mostly it did, mostly. Well, it did, yes. I mean, he sort of created a character called Noel Coward. And it's a bit like that classical myth. I can never remember who it is. It's the mask of someone who the person puts on this mask and he can't get it off. And you get the feeling that, you know, this facade was built up and it was so solid that we rarely ever saw the real person behind it. Now, part of this, I'm sure, is because he was gay at a time when homosexuality was illegal and for most of his life he was, as it were, living outside the law. So there was an element of that. And I mean, the extraordinary thing is to us, this sort of sophisticated persona with these sort of witticisms flowing off in, in all directions. I mean, he seems the essence of camp, but it was a sort of way, I think, Satan sort of suggests of deflecting 
any sort of interest in, in his private life. You know, here was this character doing these marvellous things, and that was Noel Coward. But one also gets the feeling that he was slightly stuck with it as time went on. Those early plays, I mean, now we're, we're talking about the restrictions of the age and the fact that he couldn't live as he would have wanted to. But the early plays that, you know, you talk about London Calling and the Vortex, mm. they do seem to capture something of that time, of the sort of frenetic kind of post-war time. Now, I was really interested that you see Coward as a part of the modernist movement, which is not something I've thought about. Well, that's very kind of you, but I think that the, I think credit goes to Oliver Soden for that. I mean, it is extraordinary because you look at some of those um, reviews and Dance Little Lady, for example, the, the song Dance Little Lady, where a dancer dressed as a flapper dances around, urged on by all these characters in these Oliver Messel masks. And throughout those early plays, you get the feeling of people dancing on the edge of an abyss, which is exactly what you get in, say, Vile Bodies by Evelyn Waugh and The Green Hat by Michael Arlen. So he was very much of his period in that sense. And in that way, he was modernist. And also the extraordinary dialogue is particularly in something like Private Lives, where people are sort of tossing epigrams at each other, partly to deflect reality or emotion and those incredible clipped accents that he and, and Gertrude Lawrence in particular had it gave an impression of speed and of course speed was one of the things of the sort of 20s and 30s and there is a sort of sense of modernism that having said that he thought that um, uh, Samuel Beckett's plays were absolute rubbish he also thought Pinter was no good but changed his mind later and one of the things I, I learned was a he said that Pinter was a sort of Cockney Ivy Compton Burnet, which I think is a rather interesting idea. I wonder if anybody has ever, ever <laughs> compared Ivy Compton Burnet and Pinter ever in any other context. <laughs> it seems unlikely, doesn't it? It seems unlikely, but also he forked out a thousand quid to help um, the film of The Caretaker when they were short of money. So it's quite a change around. And um, he gave some very unfortunate interviews, sort of lecturing the rising generation of writers on, you know, very, very silly they are and you know, they ought to be spending more time entertaining people. And so he could give very ill-advised interviews about such things or write articles. But actually, he reflected the age, but he reflected it in ways that we hadn't perhaps thought of before. And this sort of idea of modernism is one of them. Tell us a little bit about that other element in the book that you mentioned earlier, his war work and his intelligence gathering work. Is that, again, that's something that has been added to with the release of documents? It was known about before, but I think Oliver Soden has had, had much more material. I mean, Coward was incredibly patriotic. I mean, to the point of it being ludicrous. Uh, I mean, he talk about flag waving. I mean, literally in some of his plays like Cavalcade and things. But he went off and he was determined to do something for the war effort. So he managed, to, goodness knows how, but he managed to persuade someone to let him virtually run British propaganda in Paris. And then he was sent off as a goodwill ambassador to the United States and did a bit of sort of reporting back on the side and was actually recruited to SOE. But he was distrusted by the politicians at home and they didn't really trust him. And Joyce Grenfell uh, wrote, which is, makes one think rather less of Joyce Grenfell. She said um, his war service, it's definitely a pity that the man who represents this country should be famous as a queer. 
coming from Joyce Grenfell, who's a companist, was a, a notorious homosexual called Richard Adensel, who lived with a couture, Victor Stiebel. Seems a slightly odd thing to say. But I think there was a sense that not so much to do with sex, but his whole sort of flippant persona perhaps wasn't the way that Britain should be represented when Britain was under considerable threat from the Nazis if he was in America. But then, you know, that's one thing. But he really did then go off and do these concert tours and, you know, went to some pretty horrifying places. He went off to Burma, for example. And, um, you know, he was very near the front line and apparently once had to play the piano louder to be heard above the gunfire. And, you know, he witnessed a lot of sort of death and disease out there. But it's sort of not something he would really sort of talk about. In a way, it was it never quite got under, or if it did get under the carapace, he didn't really talk about it in any way. But he was very proud that he had done this war work. That patriotism comes out in some of the later work, doesn't it? Including film work, like in which we serve and his play, This Happy Breed. I mean, they were kind of huge morale raisers, weren't they, during yes. the Second World War? In which we serve, it's based on, was it the hood that was sunk, that was commanded by Lord Mountbatten, Dickie Mountbatten, who was a friend of his. And um, <laughs> the, apparently, uh, this isn't in the book, I can't remember where I read this, but um, they sat down with the other actors to watch the rushes. Oh, John Mills, I mean, these are, you know, Bernard Miles, Celia, John, Richard Attenborough, you know, these were not B-movie actors. Yeah, no, certainly not. And there was Coward playing the commander of this battleship in his immaculate whites. And apparently, as they were watching his sort of first take of his performance in Mountbatten, there was an awkward silence fell, and the voice just came from the front row, it's all right, mother knows. <laughs> so they had to reshoot quite a bit of it. Um, again, you know, it was shot in horrible circumstances in a, a, one of those film tanks that had some repulsive stuff in it that to, to mimic oil on the water, and everybody was getting ill and... So, you know, people mocked it, but it was very successful. And it reminds me of the other thing when that marvellous film, which was called The Sea Shall Not Have Them. This is in the 50s, which was one of those sort of war films. And Coward was walking through, again, this isn't in the book, but it comes from somewhere else, probably from Philip Hoare, that he was going past Leicester Square and there was the Odeon with a big sign saying, Michael Redgrave and Dirk Bogard in The Sea Shall Not Have Them. And Coward responded, why not? Everyone else has. <laughs> and indeed, he'd had an affair with Michael Redgrave himself uh, during the war. So he knew what he was speaking about. So it goes from this kind of movie appearance to, and I, I can never really quite square the fact that he's in the Italian job, but he is. Yes, he is. And sort of playing... These... He's Mr Big, isn't he, really? Yes, he is. Mm. And again, I mean, his movie performances are, are pretty sort of stylized and camp in themselves. The most extraordinary is the um, in Boom, which was the film starring Burton and Taylor, and it was based on a, a Tennessee Williams play. And he plays the Witch of Capri, who's a sort of queen that comes in. Apparently it was originally written for a woman, and then they put him in it. So all this thing about him sort of, you know never admitting, as he said to Sheridan Morley, who put something in the biography that came out while Coward was still alive, and he said, Sherry's got a bit more work to do, removing things. There are still some old ladies in Worthing who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, these performances, you know, I don't think there'd be many people saying, oh, look, there's a red-blooded heterosexual playing this mm. role. I wonder what you think about 
the plays now. I mean, they are still so much in production. You know, there was a private lives this year at the Donmar Warehouse, wasn't there? Yes. And they are still really popular. They are. Well, I think the best of them are. I mean, what we sort of forget that so emphasises is that, you know, for every private lives or hay fever or blithe spirit all of which are probably in production somewhere in the world now there were quite a few duds that really didn't receive either good reviews or last very long on the stage i mean he wrote so much that i suppose inevitably some of the there are sort of quality control but it's interesting that at the time bittersweet which is a sort of very old-fashioned sort of ivan Avelish sort of play I was much preferred to Private Lives, but I mean, Private Lives will be put on forever, I think. Because it's so dark and it's so filled with venom and, and the sort of despair. Yes, yes. I mean, it's very funny too, I should say. It is very funny too. And it's never been, I mean, I have seen some very good productions, but it, you know, if you listen to the recordings, there are some recordings made at the time of Coward and Gertrude Lawrence doing it in the original production. They're just some sort of extracts from the scenes. But the way they rattle off that dialogue, it is sort of brilliant and it makes the whole thing... I mean, he takes it at an incredible lick, like some of his songs. Soden says that he sort of learned about speed of delivery on stage from Broadway. And he said even English actors on Broadway spoke at about twice the rate that they did on stage. And if you listen to some of those songs, I mean... When he did his sort of series of concerts in Las Vegas, of all places, later on. And if you hear him, his rendition there of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, it starts with an orchestra playing Rule Britannia at about eight times the speed it's normally played at. <laughs> and then, then it's, he's mostly accompanied by a pianist. You can actually hear the pianist sort of desperate to catch up all the time because coward is. Mm. And then he'll do a terrible pause. I mean, it must have been a nightmare to be his accompanist. You've really made me want to go and play lots and lots of Noel Coward songs now, I have to say. Well, I certainly did while I was reading this book. It made me sort of look at the lyrics again. And they are sort of, I mean, they're not all wonderful. I mean, but he did write, I think, <laughs> I think Sinner says approximately 675 songs. So that's a lot of songs. So you can't, it's a bit like the plays, you can't expect everyone to be perfect. But amongst them, there are ones that have become complete standards. Do you do say in the book that Olive Soden writes about, you know, this great sort of persona of, of it all coming very easily and slightly languid and mm. even a little louche. But underneath that, there were troubles. I mean, he had breakdowns and exhaustions yes. when it was all quite overwhelming. And of course, that is very much kept out of by him out of his public persona, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of the interesting things, I suspect Philip Hall was rather more enamoured of Noel Coward. I think the, this book is fairly tough on Coward. I mean, that's a good thing. I'm not saying this is a criticism. I think it's a, a very good thing. He doesn't take Coward at Coward's own estimation, which is very wise of him. And um, there are quite a lot of descriptions. I mentioned him writing Blythe Spirit when he did it in eight days. He actually wrote it and he went with someone else who was also supposed to be working. And actually, he just used her as a sounding board and she wasn't allowed to do any work of her own. I mean, I suppose there's a sort of steeliness that also leads to a certain selfishness as well, you know, but people, you know, <laughs> writers can be very selfish. I mean, particularly if they're just trying to get the work done. And if that's what's important, then often people have to, um, or the friends and family have to sort of put up with it. Have to grin and bear it. Yeah. They have to grin and bear it. And I think there was um, a poem that I quote in my review all about how, 
he finds love very difficult. And I mean, I can't quote it exactly, but he says something like, you know, the minute I open my mouth, something comes out that shouldn't, and that ruins everything. So in a way, that sort of mask that he wore, it was also a, a sort of a self repression because he was frightened of you know what he really felt deeply and he was someone who felt deeply and had numerous long-standing love affairs some happy some less so i was just thinking it's quite a romantic with capital r trope the idea of the artist feels things deeply and just pours them out yes yes but, and there's no editing or anything like that at, at all mm. and in fact of course 99 percent of the time it's not really true yes and so in that sense he's he's kind of a romantic figure in, in both senses isn't he? yes i think he is though of course rather than just pouring it out he sort of fits it into these either into these sort of machine gun plays where the dialogue goes back and forth or into these lyrics so he's sort of at the same time you know compressing it just structuring it yeah, very structuring tightly structuring yeah. it very very tightly which i suppose indeed the romantic poets did by using the sonnet form or whatever but yes and he was certainly a figure of romance for other people and you know we talk a lot about sort of gay writers and their sort of covert appeal to particularly during this sort of period but also, you know, he loved women and appealed to women. I mean, one of, I think one of the best comments on Noel Coward is a short story by my late friend Georgina Hammock called Mad About the Boy. She knew everything about Noel Coward. And it's based on her own life or her own experience when as a, a school child, she would write to Noel Coward hoping that he would answer and sent him a birthday card every year. And there was never any answer, never any reply at all. And then in the story, the girl who's called Antonia Penrose, one year decides to send him a birthday card and it sounds Anthony Penrose and he, and he gets an immediate reply. <laughs> and Georgie Hammick said that is exactly what happened to her. She oh, decided George goodness. rather than Georgina. So there's a sort of side of coward that I think, you know, it's very, very funny, but it sort of shows that his appeal, I think that there is something about him that for all his faults, there's something faintly endearing. I'm not sure I'd actually want to have spent much time with him. You're certainly not sending him a an unanswered birthday card. No. <laughs> every year. I'm so delighted, Peter, that you've ended with a mention of the wonderful and much-missed writer, Georgina Hammock. I don't know that story, and I shall go and look it out immediately. I do recommend it, because it's also a very good sort of gloss on Coward's virtues and faults. I mean, it's a good bit of, as it were, literary biographical criticism as well yes so highly recommended thank you so much peter and i mean i must say you with only one or two small caveats you do seem to really rate this new biography and, and be recommending it to the coward fans among us oh i certainly do yes i have some caveats about certain stylistic ideas that soden has which i think don't entirely work about casting bits of it as though it was a play i mean casting the the form of I mean I'm all for the biographical form being changed and challenged but I just thought it didn't well it wasn't really necessary it's such a good book it didn't really need it and um, that's a minor quibble it's a terrific book and a, a very good read very funny and it's lively and pacey and his insights are uh, there are so many things I jotted down thinking yes absolutely thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it thank you
that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Ned Bolting and Peter Parker. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs>